Here we are, episode 141, and I'm Jude Gold. This is No Guitar Is Safe, and I'm thrilled to have a friend and also one of my favorite rock guitar players, Doug Rappaport. Raps! Man, he's on the show. That's Doug playing on what might be the shreddingest TV commercial of all time. We'll get into that and so much more, including his years with Edgar Winter. He's Edgar Winter's lead guitar player and his solo stuff. And I can't thank Focusrite enough for bringing us Doug today. Focusrite interfaces have everything you need, including high Z instrument inputs designed to handle the hottest pickups without clipping or creating unwanted distortion. And did you know that all Focusrite interfaces have JFET guitar inputs? That makes guitar and bass punch when you're plugging in direct. They also have gain halos around the gain controls. Isn't that, that's a cool phrase, right? I'm, my, my new band's gonna be called the Gain Halos. They glow green when you have a strong signal, but they also helpfully turn red if you're clipping. So you always know where you're at with your gain levels. And many interfaces like the Scarlet series have this easy start tool that gets you up and running in moments. The second you plug in a new interface, you need to get dialed and start creating music. Learn more about Focusrite interfaces at focusrite.com. That's one word, Focusrite, with right spelled R-I-T-E. And to really land on the right page, head to focusrite.com slash en slash guitarists. All right, let's rev up the whirly bird and head up north to plug in with Doug Rappaport. Oh, yeah. Man, I'm so excited for this day. And my name is Jude Gold. Doug Rappaport. What is this episode? Episode 141? No guitar is safe. The guitar show where guitar heroes plug in. Doug is one of my favorite hard rock guitar players or just guitar players in general. How you doing today, Doug? I'm doing good, Jude. It's good to see you again, man. It's been too long. It's great to see you. I really wanted to do this in person, but after a couple years of us not being able to Hook up, because where are you living? In Oregon? Yeah, I'm up in Oregon now. About four and a half, five years now. What part? Uh, I'm in a little town called McMinnville. It's uh, out in wine country, beautiful wine country, uh, about an hour, 15 minutes outside of Portland. Yeah, it's so beautiful up there, man. We, we were just up in Eugene. Oh, yeah. You're like, enough craziness with LA and the big city. What motivated the move up there with your family? Um, Mostly just... Uh, Mainly being priced out of the housing market, you know. I had two kids. I heard that one. And uh, the public school system was a disaster. It's just, it's a bad scene for school-wise. So uh, my wife had a, a great opportunity to um, uh, work at a great private school up north here. And her family's from here, so we have that support too. So it was just like, it's it's time to go. and Kind of a no-brainer. And then all of a sudden there's a pandemic and you're like, Yeah. <laughs> We did the right thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's cool, man. I grew up in L.A. and sometimes I miss it, but uh, it's all been good, man. Are you still in the Bay Area? I'm still in L.A., man. Oh, you're in L.A.? Yeah, right. 12 years now. I can't oh. believe it. I met you 12 years ago. Wow. Okay. 
time flies, you know. And that's when I met you, right? At GIT. Was that 12 years ago now? Yeah, that's when I started there. And, uh, you know, I did, I did the, the administrative job for about 12 years. I mean, sorry, (laughs) about four years. And then nine years ago, I joined the, uh, the band Jefferson Starship and, but uh, that was, yeah, just, man, just, I loved sitting down with you and playing sometimes, but I also just love the blazing videos that I see of you, like from your, you know, the big solos you take with Edgar Winter and such, and your killer record by Yannick. But first, tell us what are you playing and maybe give us a little sound there. We'll demonstrate that guitar in your hands. All right. Well, um, this is an R7 custom shop. It's fairly new. I think it's a two, uh, 2018 and um gibson les paul gibson les paul custom shop uh 57 big beefy neck um i did swap out the pickups i like these um they're called tone specific pickups and uh, they are pricey but um man i really dig them and uh this is called the 57 set which fits perfectly in the other than that i haven't really changed anything and um it's my one of my two favorite guitars my other favorite guitar is uh i don't know if you can see it but i got a r9 back there uh yeah yeah. when that's a a honey burst or a lemon burst actually and i love that thing so between those two i I just don't find i'm using much else (laughs) that's yeah well let's hear those pickups all right well here's uh here's the bridge and they're underwound you know just (laughs) p-a-f-e That's the bridge. Here's some neck. You are such a tasty mofo. Oh, thank you. I'm about to start cursing on here. Which is fine if you're in the mood for that. Sure. Um, yeah, that's that's just killer. And you, man, I love some of the stuff you do on like your big solo that you do with Edgar Winter, and it kind of seems like you'd have the spotlight there for a second. Yeah. Because you go all you to me, you're a cat that always has insane tone from your hands, mm. great blues bends, and you've also got the the metal in you, but you've also you got the soulfulness in you, and sometimes you have a little bit of like arpeggios but in a really sweet way, like, you know, Baroqueness. And you oh, fuse wow. it all together. Well, thank you, And man. you throw down. So what are some of those ideas that you do in, in you know, that big solo? I've seen you do, you go through a lot of phases. Like at one point, you're kind of starting off with almost like a Travisy picking. That's it, I don't yeah. know what that is. What, what's that stuff? That's just, um, you know, years ago, yeah, many years ago, I just wanted to expand what I was doing and I got into Chad Atkins and that kind of stuff, Jerry Reed. And I really just wanted to get a little bit of finger picking under my, under my fingers. And I guess it's been a while, but what's the bit? Yeah. 
just a little bit of stuff like that. And, um, you know, it's fun to, to throw it into the show. And Edgar always says, I want you to do a three-minute solo. And I'd always end up doing something like eight or nine minutes. And, <laughs> and he didn't care. And then, you know, I just sort of... And then... Yeah. I did a lot of stuff where I'd emulate slide. You know, that kind of stuff. And... Uh, You know, get that slidey kind of tone. And, um, so sweet. Yeah, and it's kind of a crowd pleaser because I'm playing for a classic rock. When I first joined Edgar's band, I was, you know, I think one of the reasons he took a chance on me is because I was a lot younger than everybody else in the band by quite a bit. And I had, you know, spiky hair and the giant earrings in my ear. And he was like, oh, man, we got to get some young blood in there. And I was very metal. And um, after a year or two of touring with him and and – you know, seeing the classic rock cats out in the audience going, yeah, all right, all right, ain't no Rick Derringer, you know. It was kind of that kind of thing. And I got to tour a lot with Rick Derringer. It was always a sort of a co-ticket there. And and I used to go to Edgar all the time, you know, how am I doing? How am I doing? How can I improve? And he'd say, well, you know, you can do a little of this, you can do a little of that. And he said, really what I want you to do is watch Rick because he's a complete... Rick, yeah. Was Rick touring with you too at that time? Obviously, he's on Frankenstein and yeah, and some of the classic stuff with... Edgar. Yeah, we did a lot of stuff together because, you know, because of the connection between the you know, the Winter Brothers and Rick Derringer has always been that thing. So promoters are always putting this together on the same ticket, you know. So we t- I toured with him always with, you know, Rick opening for us or co-headlining with us. And right. and so Edgar would say, "Just watch Rick, you know, he's a complete guitar player." And I'll go, "Oh yeah." And I just every night I'd be on the side of the stage and I'd just be like, "Wow, man." You know, he's playing these huge chords and his melodic sensibility, his blues knowledge is phenomenal. I mean, yeah, he's uh, he's an incredible guitar player. So I learned a yeah. lot. And so I sort of started embracing this much larger palette of uh, blues and trying to be as authentic as I can because that's the audience. The audience doesn't really care about, you know, the ultra shred modern stuff. They want to hear something bluesy and nasty and stinky. And, you know, that's what I tried to do well, you that's got, how I did you have it. all those things in my opinion which oh. is what i love about you and a great groove so tell Thank me you. uh what were some of the things can you demonstrate something you picked up like learning from rick or observing like something that comes to mind kind of even though it's not not note for note or something but um well you know like um that kind of stuff You know, that kind of stuff. You just drop all that tasty, bluesy stuff in all over the place. Where when I first came into Edgar's, I was like, you know, that was kind of how I was approaching things. Or, you know, uh, Rick was a little more, (laughs) you know, that kind of stuff. And I was like, whoa. So I'm obsessed lately with that thing you just did. You slide up. Yeah. It's just such a tasty thing. You start on the sixth of the four chord and go to the root of the four chord. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of the Stevie Ray Vaughan lick I learned. (laughs) Wait. Anyway, I just happened to be geeking out on that this morning and just seeing you playing that. Yeah. 
That's awesome, man. I actually got a lot of that from Hendrix because um, he would just sort of, yeah. you know, what I loved about Hendrix was how casual it was. So, um, it was so woven into his playing, and it, it was just so natural and easy. He just sort of, he just dropped those sixes in like that, like it was nothing, and it would fit in so beautifully. It was just mind blowing. So, I kind of yeah, yeah. Now that yeah. you mentioned it, I remember that lick from Red House. Yeah. When he goes to the four card. Red house over yonder, baby. Yes. I think that, that's where Stevie got it. And who knows where Hendrix got it. But anyway, I interrupt. Go ahead. It's also in uh, uh, All Along the Watchtower. I think he dro- drops a couple of those. Yeah. <sighs> yeah. That song makes me cry when I hear it to this day oh, because it absolutely. just shows you how brilliant Hendrix was and where he was heading and like if he kept going, how compositional and layered his recordings might have become. Oh yeah, totally. So, um, but you do some other stuff in your solo too, like you do like uh, some couple arpeggios shows and. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's changed quite a bit, but I mean, basically, God, how would I describe it? I just sort of, I like to use basic. Uh, start with a basic just chord just that typical rock progression and you can just sort of like I'll drop in a major seven just a basic nine go up to that D So I'm really just, you know, sticking with the that kind of chord progression theme and picking out arpeggios, and I figured out cool ways to connect it by ripping off guys like Brett Garced and um, Frank Gambali. You know, I love the way they connect up the neck. If you watch those guys play, they have a very, especially Garced, has a very diagonal approach to the guitar. Whereas you and I, or not you and I, I can't speak for you, of course, but me and other like typical rock players were... We kind of think in terms in, in that direction where he just sort of thinks in this direction. You know what I'm saying? Just sort of this diagonal movement, which is phenomenal. I don't know how he does it, but I think in trying to crack that code, uh, I came up with those. Uh, you know, just figure out how to move up arpeggios like that. No. What? blows my mind and what i love is that i feel like whatever you play i've always felt this way i feel every note like to me that's the only test of a guitar player i don't care if you play fast or slow if you're ingve or or albert king i want to feel each note and i Thank feel you. everything you do even these arpeggios what how do you keep your notes so juicy i don't know if you've ever thought about this or if you've noticed other players who don't do this but somehow you keep each note juicy even in the context of a pentatonic run or one of those more extended you know seventh arpeggios right well Where, first of all from how do you keep it juicy man <laughs> first of all thank you man i appreciate that hey i mean it um the name i think the name of the game is is understanding um legato and i, I know when we when we're guitar players we talk about legato we think about satriani and the you know that that thing um but really Look, ma one hand yeah exactly <laughs> But the thing, the thing to think about legato is it's really about space between notes, okay? So the more space you have between the notes, the more staccato it is, right? 
<laughs> if you can get to a point where the end of the one note precisely after that is the beginning of the next note. So just in simple terms, be like, you know what I'm saying? That's legato. Even though I'm picking all that, it's legato because there's no space between the notes. So when I'm trying to do, um, a bl- whether it's a blues run or trying to put together an arpeggio, I try to keep that, even though that was a little bit staccato, but I do both, you know? As best as I can, just to keep each note separated and starting the next note as soon as the previous one ends. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, no. totally. Uh, you, you get it dialed in. You sit there and you've done some work there. <laughs> yeah. I love it. And that's a nice thing, I guess. I don't know if you could have had a big room full of guitars back in L.A., but up in Oregon, you you got a huge room here just full of guitars and amps. And <laughs> Yes. That's killer. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's fun. So can you play us a little bit of one of the greatest, if not the greatest, rock instrumental of all time, Frankenstein by Edgar Winter? Sure. Show us some of those licks from that. That is one of the greatest tunes of all time. All right, all right. I'll say it. I haven't played it in like a year and a half, so forgive me if it's... Uh... Shaky, but here we go. That's just the guitar part. (laughs) That's that's great. What about like the double line with the sax lines? Uh, What is that shit? It's just my part here. solo and so then the synth solo starts and then uh let's, what, let's see the middle part is and then we do uh we do it different than that we do a uh, man when i first joined the band frankenstein was about 26 minutes long Damn. Yeah, because he would do a he would do a timbali solo, he would do a keyboard solo, he would do a saxophone solo. Then there was a guitar solo, and, and then there was another sax solo, and then there was a he even did a rap for a little while, which he stopped. Thank God. But uh, <laughs> uh, when you have one huge hit like that, you got to stretch it out. We we played in England with Mungo Jerry, and if you don't know who that is, folks, that's the guys. It's really one guy. In the summertime, and the living is high. Yeah. Yeah, he did that shit for about 25 minutes, and it was great. Yeah. And went through into all kinds of renditions, but it was stuck in our heads for like, what keys? I think it's an E. It was just stuck in our heads for like a week, and we had a, we we to this day we have a deal in the band. If anybody sings that melody, they got to pay five dollars to the person <laughs> who busts them for it. That's yeah. great. And, uh, Frankenstein's a different jam. Like, <laughs> yeah, I'd love to hear that any day of the week. And um, what do you take away from? 
playing with Edgar now for 11 years. What a great, I, he's a mystery to me. I mean, I'm a fan, but your work with him, what, what have you learned from him as a musician or? Oh, you know, um, what have I learned from Edgar? Anything. You Put know, shows or? Yeah. I mean, he just, he took me under his wing and he explained a lot of stuff to me. I can't even remember specifically what, but I have learned a lot about music from him. He would, we would, you know, on those long bus rides or van rides, he would corner me and he, he listens to music every waking moment. Okay. If he's not listening to a book, he's listening to music and it's everything from Ravel to the most avant-garde jazz and everything in between. He is a true music fan. And, uh, boy, if he could ever corner me on the, excuse me, on the bus or in the van, he got one of those multi headphone things and he'd plug and go, Doug, put your ears in. Okay. And I'd, he'd make me sit there and listen to these epic Rachmaninoff, uh, Ravel, anything he was listening to. And he would just sit there, make me listen or cannonball Adderley or any of this stuff that I never even knew existed. So he would make me do it <laughs> and he would know I was a little annoyed and I didn't really feel like it, but he didn't care. He was like, you're going to listen to this and, uh, we're going to talk about it. And I was That's like, wow. Awesome. So, you know, he definitely, I learned a lot from him and him opening me up to some amazing music I never knew existed. Now, speaking of badass instrumental rock guitar, tell me about Bionic Wars. <laughs> this is from your album, Bionic. And just, we'll listen to a little bit of it right here. Just from the very intro forward, there's so much cool stuff going on, either from a playing level or a production level or both. that choppy sound the way you chop the guitar first of all in the beginning what's going on there that background guitar almost sounds like samples oh am i talking like the that part yeah that was i had a whammy pedal and i just set i just cocked the the um the foot thing to where it was i guess separated by a a whole tone maybe or might have been a semitone so i had the semitone and the regular tone and then I think I just did the old pickup selector like that, like that's a Tom Morello. Awesome. And that's how I did it. I love that it's that it was analog. You know what I mean? That it was really played, that you didn't just chop it up in Pro Tools. Right. Because you really got a tight sound. And do you ever do that just with your guitar right now? Can, do you ever do stuff kind of like that, or is it tricky? Oh, I mean, it's just I haven't done it in a long time, but it's just it's the Tom Morello, you know. You know, it's just that. So, <laughs> and but in that piece, you, you're getting the the little. I'll fake it because I don't have a whammy pedal, but you're getting like the the intervals of a second. I guess is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think yeah, that's it. It was a second, just a regular. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. No, that's a third. Oh, come on, Rappaport. Yeah, just seconds like that. But if you have the whammy pedal set, you don't have to finger it. You just do one note, and the whammy has the other one playing right there at the same time. And then it goes into uh, like some kind of 
fluttery textures of tritones. I don't know if it's stack guitars, you know what I'm talking about? Like right after that. Yeah. What are you doing there? Or do you remember? Jeez, I don't even remember. I, You know, that was just, I sort of had this crazy moment of inspiration that was just, what happened was I saw this great movie. If you haven't seen it, get it. It's called Chopper. And it's about Mark Chopper Reed, who is this sort of cult hero criminal from Australia. And it's played by Eric Bana. Fantastic movie. I loved it so much that I, re- I wrote the song Chopper uh, on that album about it. So that was the first thing. And I just found myself in this sort of snowballing inspiration. And so I recorded that album over a period of just like a few days. And, and it was all done with the freaking Line 6, kidney bean-shaped Line 6 thing and a drum machine. And then I had... Odd. Then I had Chris Frazier add drums later on, but that's how I did it. And it was just a great moment in time that I had a lot of inspiration. I recorded the album and it was literally just going piece by piece and like, oh, I'll do this. And then I'll go, oh, let me harmonize that. And I don't really remember what I did specifically on Bionic Wars, but it was just some huge stretchy tapping lick that I was yeah. doing. And then I figured out the harmony for it and did it that way. And yeah. that's it. I don't remember exactly that's awesome. how. Chris Fraser from Foreigner? Yeah. Yeah, we just three days ago played with them in Wisconsin at this thing called Ashley for the Arts. Awesome. And it was it was us, and then they played, and then Kip Moore played with Dave Nassie on guitar, and then Toby Keith. It was this interesting day, but... Wow. We rocked out, and um, he put on a great drum solo, man. Oh, yeah. He's a beast. He's, he's like my favorite drummer. <laughs> yeah, he's something yeah. else, yeah. Yeah, well, that's, that's super cool. Well, I love, I love your style, man. Now... Why are you, uh, let me rephrase that. I see today you're not plugged into one of your fire-breathing tube heads. It looks like you're plugged into a Fender amp. Where, what are you plugged in today? And that where is, are you getting your distortion from? That is a Yamaha uh, Digi, DG100 combo amp. It's a, it's a digital amp. Sorry, folks, it's digital. Oh, no, I see. No, it's good for, for these kind of um, interviews and stuff. Yeah, for the light here on the Zoom, it looks like a silver face. Yeah. No, it's so now, uh, like, now I'm looking at it differently. Now yeah. I see a blinking like LED thing over there. You're right. Yeah, it's um, <laughs> yeah, it's just a digital amp. It's you know, it came out a long time ago, and it was when Line Six was sort of doing their thing, and then Yamaha put this one out, and it just blew them all away. You know, I haven't been used, I haven't used it in a long time, but I was trying to figure out what amp to use, and that just seemed to. I plugged it in, it sounded decent, so that's what I'm going with. Well, you know, with you, I swear to God, it's it's. Another example of tone is in the hands. Right. And that's for sure. And you know. And you got a Dr. Z there. Is that what you're going through right now? No, I'm the same as you. I'm going through the boss because oh, see yeah. the boss on top of it? Yeah. The boss katana head. Oh. Ooh. It's um it's a fun thing. You can play at low volumes. You know, it's it's running on 0.5 watts right now, but the Dr. Z is killer, but I can't turn that up in here. Yeah. Which one is it? The Z. It's a Dr. Z EMS. Okay. Which is supposed to be essential martial tones. Right. Or EM, essential martial sounds, I think is the unofficial thing. But I usually run it through the Palmer speaker simulator when I'm recording because I just I can't really turn it up to its full volume. Sure. I'm always trying to. I also have the Fryette power station, which is kind of fun. It, uh, you can bring the amp volume down. It's right there. I don't know if you can see it. But it's up on yeah, the, I see the it. Yeah, I got the same thing. One Do of you the travel best with it or no? I don't. Um, I it's don't hard travel to carry because it. it's heavy and you know. Exactly. I would like to though. You know, I mean, there's so much stuff you can do with it. They got a new one out now that looks just amazing. It's like a two channel, hundred watt. 
Oh, I'm interested in that. That could be cool. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Now tell let's let's talk about your childhood, Doug. Okay. <laughs> okay. You were born in England or? Yes. Yes. Um, how did you end up coming over to the States and where did you land? And Oh geez. Um it starts out um in uh, South Africa, Johannesburg, actually. My both my parents are like third or fourth generation South African and my father went to medical school and we did have some family mainly on my mother's side who had immigrated to England um, years before my father wanted to do his medical internship in England so they moved to London shortly after they were married and um, that's where I was born and then my brother was born there and the idea was we'd he'd finish his residency then we'd go back to South Africa but uh, you know I think you know, when you're living in a situation, you don't really see it the way the rest of the world does. And that was, uh, you know, living, growing up in apartheid South Africa and then going to England and have and seeing the world differently. They were like, you know, we can't we can't go back there. So um, the, the working situation in England wasn't really good for doctors. So, you know, he, my dad sort of reached out. And at that time in the 70s, America was sort of reaching out to European educated doctors and scientists at the time. And so they called my dad and they were like, would you please come and, you know, he ended up going to, we ended up moving to Boston and my father lectured there at Harvard for a while. Damn. And uh, so we were there for a year or two and then we came out to LA and that's where I, where I grew up ever since. That's Amazing, I, man. Now, yeah. Tell me about your first really super inspired guitar moment. Like did did you see something or did you see a live music or did you hear a song on the radio that made you or did someone play guitar in the room with you? What what was the first big moment you remember? Oh man, first big moment. Or was it just gradual? Like how did you end up, where did the lightning come from? Yeah, it was gradual. You know, um, when we moved from England to, uh, when we, we had ultimately ended up in Newport Beach act- actually. And, um, Sweet. And my mom brought over her queen albums that she got when we were living in england and i loved the queen albums um so she had to teach me how to stand she got me a little stand because she had the record player up in sort of a a cupboard thing and she got me a little stool to stand up on she showed me how to move the needle around how to put records on take care of it properly and i'd spend every free moment i had at that record player listening to queen so my love of music started there um yeah I mean, it was just so transformative and transcendent. And all the magical words you can come up with of how it moved me is how it moved me. And Any what, queen riffs that you can play for us? I mean, the song that probably to this day is my favorite song like ever is... Uh, remember that one? Amazing the people next door. Right there. Rock and roll, 45. Been a region of folks on the low floor. In this beautiful little movement. And then, of course, the choruses. I mean, this is wicked, man. That's so badass. That's great. So that was like did my... You, and then where did you move on to from there? Was there? Did you ever see any concerts? What was the? What were some of the transcendent moments when you saw somebody live playing guitar that 
change your life? Well, I used to love watching Elvis. Like every time Elvis came on the TV, I was completely transfixed. Between the Bionic Man and Elvis Presley, those were my two just heroes. And I was just completely like in awe. And I actually figured out, um, my mom had a friend who would come over at a guitar and I think he showed me an E chord and I'd just sit there and bang on the E chord all day because it looked like what Elvis was always. Whenever Elvis held a guitar, he just sort of grabbed an E chord, <laughs> even when he wasn't playing. So I was like, that's the Elvis chord. And then the other, I think the moment that I really, and I always had a thing with guitar, just if I saw one in the window, if I saw one, I was like, oh, it just sort of had this magical quality to it. And when I was a kid, I went to uh, alternative schools. You know, I didn't really go to public schools. I went to these weird freaky deaky schools in like West LA. And, you know, it was a K through 12 school. So whenever there was a dance, the whole school went to the dance. Okay. It wasn't like, you know, the, uh, uh, the big kids dance, the little kid. We all went to the dance. And they were all rockers. There were no, no nothing but rockers. So the dances were all Aerosmith and Zeppelin and Boston and, and then ACDC. And boy, they had the, we went to one dance and they had the big speakers and I heard Back in Black pump through there. And I just about lost my mind. I was like, that is the greatest thing I've ever heard in my life. And that's probably the point where I was like, this is it. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Yeah, when I heard that heard that power chord. <laughs> I mean, too. Same for you? Well, yeah, ACDC changed my life. It was the first concert I saw. I was 12 years old. It was the For Those About to Rock tour. Mm. But see, I know that I'm older than you. You're in your 40s, maybe? Yeah. Because <laughs> you had mentioned that before, but you seem like almost like you have this 70s blood in you, Like, but you can't possibly, you must have been just five years old or something. I don't know. Well, that was the Edgar thing we talked about earlier and the Rick Derringer, you know, that really, and playing with Pete Rivera and, and playing with uh, those guys, um, Pat Travers and all that, you know, for 20 years I've been on the road with these classic rock guys and you can't help but have that stuff just, you know, ooze into you. Because when I first joined Edgar, I was very 80s. I was very, you know, Van Halen and Warren Demartini and George Lynch and you know, a little bit of Ingve and Vivian Campbell and all those guys, you know, that's, that's what I was doing. Zach Wild, you know, but I, yeah, they're it, all very tasty players. You mentioned. Yeah, they totally. May be, they may be hard rock. They may be metal, but they all got the juice very much. And more. Yeah. I don't know if I said Warren Demartini, but that guy was yeah, like, you did. okay, good. Yeah. Can do you, do you have any Warren Demartini stuff you can show us or, um, oh man, I'll try. Let me see here. Let's see. Uh, there's the classic, uh, you gotta gotta squeal that that's a classic one right there and i love that that from that's from round and round and the outro solo is like all right hold on a second I love that he did that. I learned a lot of like that the subtlety stuff, like a, you know, starting the band right there instead of he started and then bring it up. You know what I'm saying? Just little things yeah. like that. It's just the stuff that just drove me crazy. Like, oh, that's the greatest thing ever. So, yeah. So, and also Warren was doing like. A, You know, the, a lot of the Mixolydian stuff that was, wasn't usual in the early 80s, you know. So he did a lot of that swing and Mixolydian stuff, which is like, 
freaking crazy yeah. good. Yeah. Well, that's juicy. Do you ever meet him, hang out with him in LA? Yeah. Well, I didn't hang out with him. I met him on the road. We opened for Rat a few times, which was just mind blowing. That must have been a thrill. Oh, unbelievable thrill. He's a very nice guy. So, very excited to meet him. And you're a great evangelist for Vivian Campbell from those Dio years. Yeah. Anything you want to show us from there? You've got like the Rainbow in the Dark solo nailed. Yeah. Um, You know, (laughs) that one, the Rainbow, is that the Rainbow in the Dark? You know that the the key that I that opened it up for me for Vivian Campbell was he was talking about him being a, a Gary Moore fan. He was hardcore into Gary Moore, and Gary just sort of had this ultra strong left hand, and Vivian does too. Just getting that simple kind of lick down will open the door. What is that lick? You're picking a couple of the notes. Yeah. That's really difficult to pick all that. It's, I don't think I could do it. That's really hard to pick. No, show, us, show us what you are doing and play it, and then slow it way down to okay, so it's like the speed of a glacier. Yeah. Uh, I'm just trying to figure out what I'm doing with the picking hand. You know, you know how it is. It's just sort of. It's hard to slow it down, and, <laughs> and it's hard to know what you're doing because you have it's sort of become a subconscious thing, right? So yeah, it's just really hitting it hard with the left hand. Um. God, I'm I'm just picking it once, so it's like. So right when I get to that C, is when I pick. So. That's the Gary Moore Vivian Campbell lick. Sweet. I love that one little move in there. Where does he... You know what I'm talking about? On Rainbow in the Dark? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, at the end of the solo. That one. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I don't remember how I did it. It's in the context of the whole solo, you know. Yeah, maybe I'll do a, a, a short lesson on that and how to do it. <laughs> now, what about the Stratocaster? I've been like, I am such a big fan of players who can handle a Les Paul and handle a Strat. Yeah, because there's some people who just don't really cross over. Yeah, like, you're one of those. You think so? Who can? I do. Man, that's nice, man. You, like, Thank the you. The tones you were getting on, on some of those videos on the Stratamajammer, do you, is this a new thing for you, or have you, have you been playing strats your whole life? You know, I came up on strats, but they were super strats. You know, they had the Floyd and the... Humbucker. I mean, that's not really true. My first guitars were kind of Gibson-style guitars, but then I went to the... You know, because it was the 80s, and everyone had the super strats. So I eventually got one when I was about 15. But, you know, I had 22 frets and a really flat fretboard radius and a Floyd, so it's not really... Strat, strat. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, this is um, Sorry. this is, this is made by Iconic Guitars, and cool. um, I've really had bad luck with strats. I never found a strat that I connected with. I did one time at True Tone Music in L.A., but they wanted six thousand dollars for it because it was um a custom shop relic. So they they made a really good strat and then they beat the shit out of it. Right, they just beat it to <laughs> yeah. hell, and every every time they put a ding on the guitar, it's another two hundred bucks. Right? 
Yeah, so now you're holding this Iconic, which is three single coils and a rosewood fretboard and yeah. 21 frets. Yeah, it's just um, the only thing that's not real vintage about it is the radius is a little flatter than a, than a typical, which, which I, I support. I was, you know, I went to, I went over to the Conan show and with a Jimmy Vivino and I got to meet Conan for a second and he has his guitar out. It's like a Buddy Holly spec. Oh, 55 Stratocaster that I was really nervous to drop. So I was holding onto it for dear life. Right. But yeah, the radius is just so round on those things. You bend a note. It's like, yeah, totally. He did not have all that delay on there though. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but uh, yeah, I have, I approve of a strat with a, a wider radius. Yeah, for sure. So yeah, I mean, I just what I love about what I try to achieve about what I love about great strat players is they can make it sound like more than the sum of its parts. In other words, every strat sounds the same, right? I mean, you got you got your your bridge tone, and then you got your. And so on. And then you move through all that. It's just the typical Strat sounds. The guys who really play great Strats, they don't sound like a Strat. They sound like more than that. And guys like, obviously, yep. Jeff Beck comes to mind. I mean, he, he makes that thing sound like a violin or a cello or whatever. You know, Josh Smith is another great Strat player. He's just magical on a Strat. Man, that guy can, I don't know how, he just sounds like amazing. Yeah. And as much as I love Stevie Ray Vaughan, I, I love him as much as anybody does, but it still sounded like a Strat when he played, you know. Yeah. So he didn't even have quite that magic that could make a Strat sound like more than a Strat. So I really admire guys that make a Strat sound like So that's kind of the exploration I'm on now is try, trying to achieve that kind of not sound like a Strat Strat. Scott Henderson's another great example of that. Yes. Mm. Yeah, play us a couple of noodles. All right. Uh, let's see. <laughs> Super tasteful, and you get that bar there too. I mean, there's something magical about the strat tones and the like the tinkles, tinkly sound of the in between settings, or, or yeah. the way you were using the bar. Give me some more of that bar if you don't mind me uh, sure. asking you for favors here. Sure. <laughs> Oh man, so sweet! <laughs> Thank you. Such a fan. I, you know, like I said, I've always wanted this to be in person, and now we all got vaccinations and stuff, and probably it was just, it was just, I had to do it even over Zoom. Just had to hear you play, even if we can't jam. Oh, thank you, man. Just You're too cool. kind, man. Thank you. What are you doing for amps these days? What do you get on the road? Do you when you travel with? Uh, first of all, what's the status with uh, Edgar Winter? Are you guys just taking a break for pandemic or? Um, the status is. 
Edgar got a, a a nice record deal to do a tribute to Johnny. So that's been his focus the last year and a half. And, you know, he's, uh, he's bringing in sort of all the cats, all the A-list cats are coming in and playing on it. I got to be on a track, which is cool. Um, Sweet. So he's concentrating on that. I think they're in mixing mode now. So that's just been his focus. And I think we have some stuff penciled in for next spring. But um, yeah. that's been the focus. So I'm, I'm sure he's, you know, he loves to play music. And as soon as he's feeling like he's ready to go, we'll go. So, yeah. Beautiful. That's the focus. And what, what, what goes on with the gear with that band? Like my band, we rent everything backline. I'm always kind of arrived at just fucking Fender Twins, man. Yeah. Like I can get the really clean sound and, you know, the right distortion pedal. But it's hard to get one amp that can do it all for for my band, but but if it was more of a hard rock situation, I might have a tube head. I mean, I might have like a high gain head or something like I do sometimes, Marshalls. Yeah. But, you know, they're kind of inconsistent. Do you guys bring your own gear on the road with you in a truck or do you use backline? Um, if we've ever, on the few times we've done, you know, extensive road gigs, we'll bring our own gear or some of it. Mainly, I just bring a guitar and pedals, and then I, you know, same. I get backline, which is typically a JCM two thousand, uh, two JCM two thousands, and two four twelves loaded with seventy five watt Celestians, which I've learned to live with. Not what I like, but <laughs> I've learned how to do it. And mainly, I just set the amp up kind of clean and use pedals out front. Yeah, there you go. Do you like you use the? Um, I love those amps, especially the clean channel. But you push the button in. Yeah. And then you get a little dirt. Is yeah. that what you do? Or do you use it 100% clean? Um, Let me think. Um, it's got a green channel. And then if you push in the button, yes. you get a little overdrive. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I don't push in the button. I just crank the gain on the clean, which gives me a nice enough breakup that when I add a pedal to the front, it just seems to work better. God, I don't I like that. Admit, I haven't tried that. Yeah, it's good. It's good. If you have a really good drive pedal, like ones you use in front of your twins, you should try it. It it sounds really good. You know, yeah, I got yeah. Stuart Ziff to do that, you know? Stu Ziff. Remember him? Yeah, of course. Yeah. With, uh, with War, guitarist yeah. of War. And yeah. Our, our friend from Musicians Institute. Yeah. Stuart Ziff. And, you know, Jeff Coleman does similar stuff with the um, JCM 2000, I think, when he, I saw him. You know, he's a friend of mine. And yeah. And we played on the boat with Alan Parsons, and he was doing that. He gets great tones out of those amps. Amazing tone. Yeah, he's like a tone master. <laughs> but, you know. So, yeah, I haven't really tried that. That would be a, a cool way to go, just crank up that clean channel yeah and then uh, just use your pedal out front but, yeah you know I, there's a lot of this kind of some there's a couple of 60s songs we do where i really need or even i even do this solo piece yeah called embryonic journey that was originally acoustic guitar like if i get up there and i have a bad marshall or something like i can't get the it's like a travis picking thing there's a lot of different shit in there, but like yeah. I've just found it to be tricky to do that kind of stuff. Or this other one, this really pretty one. It's like 60s reverb tank kind of stuff. Yeah. How do you feel about the Kemper? I did that for a little bit, a couple years. Hey, man. I love those that I've heard. I've never really tried one for more than a couple minutes. Mm. But it's an interesting thing you mentioned here. Like I definitely love them running through actual speakers. Yeah. I saw a great band open for us the other day. And they were killer, and the guitar player was playing through a Axis, I mean a Helix. Yeah. And he sounded killer. Everything was great, but I like I was standing back, and it was outdoors, and and I could kind of hear that there was no guitar amps on stage because it was kind of a minimal PA system, and it 
there's definitely something missing when you're going direct through the monitors or your ears and the guitar is only coming out of the speakers. Unless you're playing something so gigantic, like Metallica or something. Yeah. No one's going to miss the cabinets on stage. But it was kind of interesting. I was like, hey, that sounds really good, but I can tell that the amp is not on stage with the band. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Kind of, the little bit of the thunder was lacking, but I don't know if you would run the Kemper that way or if you would run it through an amp too to get the power. I did both. I, I, I had it. You got two outs that go to the house. Sound men love it because the stereo oh, yeah. thing is tremendous. And then you have another uh, monitor out and you just go into the, I would go into the return of a Marshall, right? And then have it come yeah. out of the speaker right there. So it's not ideal. Yeah. It's not ideal. It doesn't, it, nothing touches a tube amp, but um, yeah, yeah. you know, as far as getting, just having a consistent, you know, you could have your consistent clean sound to do that bit that you wanted. And then you can have your Marshall yeah, yeah. and your Fender sounds like right there every night. I love those. Yeah. I mean, my friend Matt Blackett does uh good stuff with a Kemper straight into an amp like that and running yeah. to the PA. Yeah. And I'm down with all those things going straight to the PA or even using a Palmer speaker simulator on a tube amp. It sends a little line level to the PA. Some people do that. Yeah. But um, I'm also a little nervous sometimes about, you know, the roadworthiness of these Kempers. Oh, yeah. And such. Like if that thing goes out, you just hear these stories. I just don't want to be one. The other day, there was a big band in town. I, I don't want to name their name because I can't remember. It's a big R&B band. I want to say maybe, I don't know which, I don't remember which band it was, but they were scrambling because the processor went out. Oh, yeah. The guitar thing. It was either, it was a Helix or a Fractal or a Kemper or something. They were, I was just like, what a bad situation to be in. Yeah. Yeah. It's a live by the sword, die by the sword thing. A lot of the bigger guys, you know, I think, like guys like uh, animals as leaders, and the, they all have a redundancy rig right there. So. Oh yeah, you're gonna have to have two of them. Is yeah, what I'm saying. To. Totally. Totally. Yeah. Oh yeah. So yeah, and traveling with two Kempers, hmm, I'm not quite ready for that, but I definitely have <laughs> talked to people who do that. Yeah, I mean, I was always ready to go because I'm playing through an amp, and if it didn't work, I had a a tuner and a tube screamer, and if just if it all yeah. went to shit, I could just switch over, boom, plug in the amp and go. So. It was always that. Yeah, you, you could land anywhere on your feet sounding good and playing excellently. I, I, I mean that. <laughs> oh, thank you. But I, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's a tough thing what you and I do, you know, using different rigs every night because sometimes you get a really crappy, tired, messed up rig and you sound like shit and you got to play and it's like the most uninspiring tone and you just got to get through the night. I mean, how many years have we done that? I mean, it happens all the time, you know, it's just part of the gig, you know. Yeah. It's a killer. Yeah. And there's always these moments that can, hopefully it's comedy and not tragedy. I got a really good story. I'll tell you quick. I, uh, yeah. I had a gig years and years ago in Florida, an Edgar gig. And the guy, they brought me a JCM 800, a vintage one. And uh, they were doing me a real solid. And it just sounded like shit. It was nasally and bright. And no matter what I did, it sounded horrible. And I was complaining and... And they went, oh, okay. And they took it and they went out to it. They go, I got a friend who's got a, a, a really good plexi. And they brought me this plexi I and mean, the whole thing. And then that didn't work. Same problem. And then they brought me another JCM 800 from another guy's house. These guys went all over the place to help me. And the whole time, I'd had my wah on. Oh, my God. <laughs> I, I applaud you for confessing to that. Yes. 
Yes, that is rough. That is rough, man. Yeah, I yeah, I still humbly <laughs> I, all of you at the I've lyric done that theater for a while before, but not a whole afternoon. Yeah, no, I had these guys running all over town for me. It was probably the most embarrassing professional moment of my life, and I've had many. So uh, yeah, yeah, I, I know I've there. done something like that, but oh yeah, I remember. <laughs> I was playing with this DJ. Well, he's a producer named JJ. He's mm. really great, and. uh but he would do live shows sometimes with a few live musicians. But those clubs, the subwoofers in those dance clubs are insane. Like they uh, will shake your rib cage. Yeah. And we must have spent 45 minutes and he kept asking me, is it the guitar amp? And I was going direct. Yeah. Out of a, a Tech 21 amp, which has a pretty cool direct thing you can do. Yeah. And I had muted the speaker by plugging in a little patch cable. Like I plugged a patch cable into the headphones or something. Well, it turned out after like 45 minutes or an hour, the guy was pulling his hair out. It was, in fact, my guitar amp, even though I kept saying it wasn't. The subwoofer was shaking that little cable in the back. Yeah. And the oh cable God. was like touching the metal of the speaker magnet and causing a... Brutal. I felt like such a, such a maroon. Yeah. I <laughs> hear you, yeah, man. I know how that can be. Well, man, it's been great to talk to you, man. Anything else you want to mention or what's going on anything on the horizon um i've been recording my own i got a new i'm going to be putting out new music i haven't decided if i'm going to do one song at a time or release an actual album but uh, i've been recording and i really you know that album you mentioned earlier you kindly brought up uh, that's old man that's like 2006 yeah. or something so bionic I'm well overdue um, yeah, well, yeah. To keep us posted for sure yeah so you know i've been recording and i'm really liking what, what's been happening and you know I hope that uh, I hope I'll find some cool collaborations and cool stuff to do in the future, and hopefully be out on the road soon. Maybe we'll do some stuff together, man. That'll be cool. Yeah, anytime, man. Classic rock. I loved. It. I remember one time we were sitting in the room at MI, and you were playing some "Girl Gone Bad" uh-huh. from Van Halen. You really had the nice touch on it. Like you really got some of the nuances. Thank you. Yeah. Let me switch guitars here. Which one do we want to try? Oh, it's really it's really hard to. Do Van Halen in front of a Van Halen expert here. Been a while. That That's a motherfucker. Oh, excuse my French. That's a tough one. Uh It's also amazingly clean. I love his guitar tone on 1984. It's incredibly clean tone. That's it. What is that? Oh. Something like that. Yeah, so one of those. Yeah, I love that shit, man. Well, I, I will say that you know I I'm not great at learning solos and stuff note for note, but what I really loved about Eddie and all the guys that I loved was uh, the nuance. You know, the way Eddie would make the note go, wow, you know, just by yeah. hitting it and shaking it a certain way. You know, that's the kind of stuff that appealed to me and his, his timing and his right hand. Is- he had such a swing to his grooves and, and you seem to have that. You know, I was, I was talking to somebody the other day. Um, actually, it was another podcast uh, not that long ago that I did. And we were talking about 
how Eddie was such a huge Clapton fan and they were making the point that was like, you know, Eddie's such a huge Clapton fan, but you can't hear any Clapton in his playing. And I was like, um, I beg to differ. <laughs> I hear tons of Clapton in his playing. And if anyone wonders what it is, it's his right hand. Okay, so like, uh, so like you got a Clapton. Right? It's that whole right hand thing. And you'll hear yeah. it all through the cream, and it's all in Eddie's playing, all that stuff. And that's just crossroads. It is, man. I never thought about it that way. I mean, I always knew it was in there in the solos and everything. And just like, but yeah, the good point you make. And you played with Pat Travers, right? Now, now a snorting whiskey, drinking cocaine, That what's that riff? Can you play that for me? It always kind of reminded me of Mean Street, which Eddie Van Halen came out with. Yeah, um, that one's a... Uh... Uh, sorry. So yeah, slow is a right. Yeah, man, I'm a big fan of tracing these licks, and we don't know for sure that Eddie got it from that or vice versa. Or I think that came out first, maybe. But they always there's there's just an evolution that yeah. is shared, you know. Yeah, it's a this great whole thing about this whole thing about Ghostbusters being stolen from the Huey Lewis tune. But the Huey Lewis tune goes back to pop music, pop music. Yeah. Right. It's like. I'm just always fascinated with where these things maybe came from, or I hear them all the time. Yeah, like, I, uh, I think there's a lot of like osmosis. A, it just you can't help it. It just becomes a part of you, and yeah. it comes out in your music. Yeah, Dua Lipa's got this new song. Like to me, a child of the '70s, that's hear the city breaking and everybody shaking, and we're staying alive, staying alive. Yeah, I mean, it's, all, it's all borrowed, you know. <laughs> Oh it's yeah! Always something that sounds like something. Before I let you go, I remember you did this one Sprint commercial. Was it? Uh-huh. Oh, um, uh huh. Oh, not Sprint. And there was what M- was it? M- T-Mobile? M- not T-Mobile. Uh, I forget what it was. MC something. I forget the name of the company. One of one of those. I don't think they're oh, around was it anymore. MCI? No. Shit! I was. I thought it was a phone commercial or something. Yeah, it was. It was a phone plan commercial. One of the bigger ones. I'm sorry, I can't think of the name right now. But yeah, and that was so funny, man. Because your shredding was all over that commercial. What yeah. what were you doing on that that commercial? You know, that one got handed to me uh, by Toshi Yanagi. He he referred me to that. And right. It was it was a big. Uh, we went to Tusk Studios, which is I you know the Fleetwood Mac studio, and it was just um, I brought in all the amps that I had at the time. I don't remember what it was exactly, but. Um, you know, they put on like $48,000 worth of microphones. And it was a big gig, you know. And then all I had to do was just 
shred as much as I could, and that's what I did. <laughs> what was the name of that commercial? Can I or I wonder if we can find it? My my dad has one of these plans. What is it? The the city metro PCS. Metro PCS. That's it. Metro PCS. A total dad plan. Yeah. All right. So let's see if I could find that on YouTube here. I think I found him. There's one called Tech and Talk Guitar Solo. Yeah, that's it. Chad plays guitar. Yeah, that's it. He looks like he's got a BC Rich or something. Yeah, that's the one. Metro PCS now has a 4G network. To honor this, Chad will demonstrate the shredding speed of 4G on his beloved guitar, Shirley. Introducing Metro PCS's no annual contract 4G LTE for a faster, richer web experience. Metro PCS 4G wireless. For Isn't that funny? The big ones always pay. The, there's some that the biggest ones, and maybe in terms of paycheck and stuff, are sometimes are the smallest amount of playing. I, I play. I had like two notes on this Ace Hardware commercial. Man, I got. I wish I could say I got a lot of those gigs. I was very fortunate. My friend Hector Perez. I played like two notes on that thing. But they played it so much, I got checks for like a year. Yeah. Yeah. That's amazing. It's the best. <laughs> and then other ones, you work your ass off and like nothing happens. <laughs> yeah. I tell you, the toughest toughest session I ever did was, uh, and I've done a couple of them, is um, software. When they were developing like guitar software where you have to play a note, short, long, long sustain, vibrato, yeah. light vibrato, heavy vibrato, and every effing note on the neck it's just the most exhausting brain numbing it's the worst <laughs> i don't recommend I, you do that i agree I, I once you know talking about sessions i once did uh a toy guitar which was very cool and they would have different songs in there and i'd have to replicate all the tones and guitar parts exactly as i could like I think one of them was like a Blink One Eighty Two song, and then there's a couple other ones. And oh yeah, yeah, it's just it's very tedious if you're sitting there trying to replicate something exactly, and you yeah. can't be yourself. You're just being an imitator, or and the and the recording goes on for eight hours of. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> I know what you're saying, man. Yeah, those are tough. Doug, man, fantastic catching up with you. You too, Drew. Um, Thank you for, for having this. Thank you for having me, man. It's great to talk to you again. This is. No guitar safe. Doug, keep it alive till you're 95, mofo.